Hi, I'm Abby Veach. I'm a college senior at American University. This podcast is the final product of my environmental science capstone research project. Last episode, we discussed the idea of nature connectedness, or how building relationships with nature not only benefits individuals, but also makes people more likely to engage in pro-conservation efforts. I also spoke with experts about how identity plays into people's engagement with conservation and how if communities are not listened to and centered in conservation efforts, they're less likely to be receptive to those efforts. I spoke with conservationists doing the work to learn from and engage with communities while conducting research. It is first important to acknowledge that indigenous people across the US and globally were and continue to practice stewardship of nature and have built relationships with land for centuries, long before North America was colonized. However, conservation as we know it in the mainstream context was conceptualized in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the establishment of the first national parks and with leaders like Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir popularizing the idea of preserving pristine wilderness. During this time, some of the first conservation organizations formed, such as the Audubon Society and the Sierra Club. During this time, two opposing factions within the movement also emerged, conservationists and preservationists. Conservationists sought to regulate human use, while preservationists sought to eliminate human impact in nature altogether. The original conservation movement was led and formed primarily by elite white men seeking to escape their urban environments into wild landscapes where they could recreate. Many of these men held racist, classist, and sexist views. Professor Taylor Dorsetta, an environmental sociologist and author of The Rise of the American Conservation Movement, said, The conservation movement arose against a backdrop of racism, sexism, class conflicts, and nativism that shaped the nation in profound ways. Though these factors are not usually incorporated into environmental history texts, they are critical for our understanding of how discourses about the environment were developed, policies formulated, and institutions organized. The conservation movement and these views are at the root of American environmentalism. The focus on protecting pristine wilderness discounts the many indigenous communities who have lived on and nurtured the land for hundreds of years. And this mindset is often held above the inclusion and well-being of local communities who are frequently the best stewards of said land. The establishment of the national park system forced many indigenous communities off of their land for the sake of preservation. In addition, the national park system to this day remains extremely inaccessible for working class people who do not own or cannot afford cars. There are numerous examples of the damage the conservation movement has inflicted on BIPOC communities and how the movement was shaped to be purposefully elite. John Murr, the founder of the Sierra Club, has been documented referring to both indigenous and black folks in derogatory terms and made it clear that he did not see a place for non-white people in the wilderness. In the 1850s, the creation of New York City's iconic Central Park forced a thriving black community to dismantle in the name of creating green space. And the first head of the U.S. Forest Service and a good friend of Teddy Roosevelt sat on the board of the American Eugenics Society. And while the conservation movement has certainly expanded and diversified since then, notably with the expansion of environmental grassroots action in the 60s and 70s, and the rise of environmental justice and community-based conservation in the 90s, 
Many of these themes and narratives are still very present in the modern discussion of why and how we conserve land. And even now, all these years later, many of the well-funded environmental organizations and outdoor communities remain very white and exclusionary. So after we contextualize this complicated history to better understand our present, what's next? There is so much more to unpack there than is possible to do in a single episode, but it is crucial to understand one factor. American conservation sought to intentionally exclude groups. However, we know that the best, most effective conservation is based off of doing basically just the opposite of that. We know that when people form relationships with nature, there are positive outcomes for conservation involvement and for the well-being of individuals. When people develop an identity that is connected to environmentalism in some way, they're more likely to get involved in positive environmental action. And the most effective conservation practices are based on the knowledge and inclusion of diverse communities. I next spoke to two activists who are leading the future of the conservation movement to a more diverse and inclusive path. Here's Hannah Malvin discussing what she hopes that future looks like. I'm Hannah Malvin. I'm uh, based in D.C. I founded Pride Outside to connect the LGBTQ community around the outdoors back in 2016. Um, And I've also worked at the Wilderness Society as Recreation Policy Associate and Senior Representative for Partnerships. And can you talk a little bit about you know, where you started, where you're from, and and how you came to this work? I really fell in love with the outdoors leading canoe trips up in Canada over college summers um, and kept going on those trips, uh, on canoe trips with friends over the years. Um, And after I got back from a particularly fun one up in the Yukon, two weeks canoeing with some of my best friends, I was just so knocked out by how how special it was out there and was feeling so lucky to have grown up knowing where to go, what to do, what to bring and to have the outdoors in my life. Um, and I wanted to work on, um, people in the outdoors and, um, building more, um, diversity outside. Um, so I started pride outside to connect um, the LGBTQ community around the outdoors. And I started looking for opportunities in connect in sort of outdoor recreation and um, build community engagement around the outdoors. Um, Did a lot of informational interviews to get a sense of where that work lives um, and what was happening in it and um, where there could be opportunities. And I um, landed at the Wilderness Society um, working on recreation policy and then moving into work on partnerships. With Pride Outside, you're you're focused on a a group that traditionally is not really represented in in conservation, Um, although there is a massive LGBTQ plus um, community, as we know, um, in the outdoor movement, but they're not traditionally the face of the conservation Mm -hmm. movement. Can you talk a little bit about why having that representation is important um, for the goals of conserving and protecting land? Yeah, I think it's really important to be boosting representation and visibility um, across the conservation movement. And I like to frame it a little, I think we often get asked about 
um, you know, why diversity and inclusion and equity is important in the outdoors in terms of how to, um, in terms of sort of making the business case, the financial case, or um, why it's good for achieving policy goals. And I think it's, it can be important to frame it from why do we, you know, it's important period. It's the right way to do it. You know, we shouldn't, um, everyone should be a part of it. Everyone should have access to these places. Everyone um, should have a say in, in policymaking and in, in how we manage these spaces. So it's not, I, I prefer to come at it from a, you know, doing it, we should do it for the right reasons, you know, right. um, so that we're not getting caught up in sort of the financial case or the um, just trying to sort of like do equity work for to better achieve our policy goals, you know. But um, but I do think having um, more people from more backgrounds does end up helping have um, – build better policies and um, have more perspectives in the room and help, you know, have more information to understand people's needs and experiences and perspectives in the outdoors so that um, we can build a better public land system and conservation movement to serve everyone. Yeah. Right. And, and to sort of like go, go off of that, that point that you you want to do this because it's the right thing to do because people deserve access to outdoor spaces and and wilderness spaces how have you seen that affect people's lives and in your work by by bringing people into these spaces where they might not have felt comfortable previously so I co-founded the LGBTQ Outdoor Summit with um, Elise Rylander from Out There Adventures and so since 2017 we've been hosting about 150 um, environmental professionals to come together around boosting representation and inclusion for the LGBTQ community outside. And it ends up being mostly LGBTQ folks. And we've found that it's been a really powerful, affirming experience for people. Um, You know, the LGBTQ identity can be hidden. You don't necessarily know you know, if people haven't disclosed or it's not necessarily a visible identity or um, you, you don't necessarily know if someone else in your workplace is also um, a member of the community. So a lot of people, or you may not feel comfortable disclosing, you know, so um, a lot of people have felt alone or sort of wondered if there's other people out there like them or wondered um, if people might accept them or, haven't had these spaces to be able to connect both their LGBT identity and then also their um, love of the outdoors or their sort of environmental professional identity. So it's been, we've found that having space to connect around that, to bring those two pieces together, to feel celebrated and not othered, to feel, you know, people have said it has like felt like medicine um, to be able to be together, to see other people like them and, make friends and feel less alone in um, the professional space and in general. I think there's been a reckoning within the environmental movement, much like there has been in a lot of different industries, but it's something that, you know, we've 
those of us who are like in the environmental sphere have been talking about for decades. Um, but the fact mm-hmm. that there's a history of exclusion within mm-hmm. the environmental sphere and, and specifically the conservation movement. Can you talk a little bit about the mistakes the conserva- the conservation movement has made in the past and, and the ones that they continue to make that makes folks feel like the outdoor space is not for them? We've, we dove into some of this at the Wilderness Society, building a public lands history curriculum that um, really dives into some of the um, injustices and inequities in public lands history um, from genocide and violence and just possession, uh, segregation, um, a lot of the really ugly side of public lands history over the years. Um, and... Then I think it also extends to modern day the outdoor industry and the conservation community also work to publicize or advertise about the outdoors and you know what kinds of messages we see about who who the outdoors is for. And I think sometimes people have made the mistake of assuming that everyone else wants to experience the outdoors the same way that they do. You know, maybe like in the untrammeled, hardcore wilderness and intense weather conditions and to challenge yourself physically or whereas there's many equally valid ways to enjoy and experience the outdoors. Um, And I think um, a lot of the messaging and a lot of the work around protecting places has been focused on some of the some of the former there. So I think um, there's work to sort of expand the perspective of who who the outdoors is for and make sure, which is everyone, and making sure that we're doing work to support everyone's access and inclusion outside. How do we uplift the, the history that does exist um, that we don't necessarily usually include in our narrative about Mm -hmm. the conservation movement or about the environmental movement? I think there's all kinds of creative ways to um, dig into underrepresented history in the outdoors um, and share place-based stories um, about different communities. And there's a lot of, a lot of really cool work being done right now. Um, the park service has a bunch of different theme studies in 2016, they put out their, um, LGBTQ theme study, which is 1,200 pages um, written by over 30 LGBTQ history experts, really um, exploring interpretation themes that they can use at at different park sites to be able to um, tell this history. Um, and there's we're doing um, the Pride Outside is partnering with the. Um, Park Service LGBTQ employee group, like you mentioned, and we're hosting a weekly LGBTQ history series now during quarantine, so people can tune in virtually every Thursday night to hear different LGBTQ history experts um, sharing um, about some of their research and preservation efforts. Um, I think... Um, one of the interesting points in this space is to share both um, positive and negative 
histories. So not just to harp on, you know, it's important to share about um, negative things that have happened in a community's history and to be able to understand them and learn for um, going forward um, how to build a more equitable society. And I think it's also important to celebrate the um, accomplishments and achievements and um, sort of beauty of um, uh, like the richness, the culture of these underrepresented communities too. So I think there's a nice, you know, you know, it can be important to hit on both of those. I think there's a lot more opportunity there as um, interest is growing in equity around the outdoors and place-based history. I think um, there's a lot of stories to tell. There's a lot of really cool oral history work going on and memory mapping and um, it can be really powerful to hear those stories firsthand and to um, see some of the projects that are coming together to capture some of the stuff that otherwise, otherwise could easily get lost because we don't necessarily um, value it. That's, that's been a big theme in our LGBTQ history nights is how easy it is for some of this stuff to disappear. Um, some of the primary sources, some of the materials, like we don't, um, always, um, if, if the community's history hasn't been valued as a part of say American history, um, it's, it's not those, artifacts aren't always preserved and you know there's all these heroic researchers that track stuff down and end up getting to save some of it it's not just the famous people or the politicians or the celebrities um in the lgbtq community who make who make up lgbtq history it's all of us so all of our um experiences in the sum total make up the experience of our communities so that's been a really empowering message to um throughout our series what other work have you seen being done within the conservation movement um either groups or or programs that you think are, are really effective at doing this this you know important job of of making sure that folks are seen and heard within the movement um i think there's really a ton of amazing work going on um, Diversify Outdoors, that coalition has a lot of great individual groups um, that are working across different identities to, um, to share stories about people um, in the outdoors, Melanin Base Camp, Brown People Camping, um, PGM1, Greening Youth Foundation. There's so many amazing organizations out there doing really important work. Um, I'm a big fan of affinity spaces. I think it's important to have places where we're with people from mix, uh, you know, a mix of identities, but also that it's so valuable to have spaces to come together with our community um, and be together. I think that can help. Um, I think people can feel like they have an invitation to go outside or to be a part of this um, environmental or conservation space uh, if they didn't know where to go, what to do, what to bring, but they have an invite to be there with people from their community. I think that can be um, 
really, really a great way to find their way into it. And I think um, it, it can be a affinity spaces can be great for letting out some frustrations and having building connections and celebrating and it can be a good way for developing leadership and other skills for people who are doing some of the organizing and facilitating. I think there's sort of endless benefits and um, I've been pretty knocked out by the power of, um, of what they can, what they can do for people. What do you want to see in the future of the conservation movement? I would love to see more investment in staff learning and growth and skill building and knowledge sharing around um, building equity in our work and relationship building, community outreach. I think um, sometimes those skills can be sort of seen as soft skills or not taken quite as seriously as um, some other elements of the work um, and I think that there's so much richness there's so much to learn and it can often happen in silos and um, we don't necessarily benefit from one another's sort of aha moments and realizations and lessons learned and I would love to see more coordination more um, sort of intentionality around um, building partnerships and um, um, building equity in our work and just sharing what we learn along the way. And um, I'm also studying positive psychology right now, the science of well-being, and would love to sort of insert some of that piece of, um, in terms of investing in the people doing this work and making sure that it's sort of uh, the work is equitable and effective and enjoyable along the way. I'm, I'm really excited about the positive psychology piece um, to, uh, to be able to sort of support people's um, resilience and vibrancy and um, sort of um, some of these practical applications and interventions that can help boost our well-being. Um, I think there's, um, there's so much joy in relationship building and human connection and um, connection with the outdoors and all of this, like it's, it's totally right there. Um, and sometimes it can be over overcast with some, you know, some of the frustrations of trying to bring people together with different ideas or, you know, different, if people don't agree on stuff or if um, people have different time frames or if it's not coming together smoothly, you know, there's, there can certainly um, the work can be hard and frustrating and um, overwhelming sometimes. So I really um, want to invest in some of the the boosting staff well-being so that um, we can sustain ourselves in the work and um, not make it harder than it has to be. I spoke to Andrea Perez, a passionate advocate for Indigenous environmental justice, who serves on the Council for Intersectional Environmentalists, and runs an Instagram account that amplifies the voices of Indigenous communities and works to promote environmental stewardship.
My name is Andrea Perez. I'm an Indigenous environmental justice advocate. I'm currently on the council with Intersectional Environmentalist. Currently, I live in Corona, California. We have open mines in our local mountains. I went to college in the University of San Francisco, and there kind of got involved with understanding the environmental issues that were happening with the... They were trying to dredge the bay and I don't know more SF, which is an organization throughout the country. They were pushing, they've always like made, had efforts to push against like the destruction of the environment and through an indigenous lens, it's an indigenous led organization. And why like drove you to get involved with those issues? I was an environmental science student in college but growing up we always had like my mom was always telling us our relationship to the land was different since we were growing up we were always raised as the land and you are connected and it's not a separate entity so I was always trying to advocate in the small ways um in school it was like the children would bottle up the caterpillars and I was trying to tell them like you're killing them and you're harming them and they're doing they have a role to do in the grass like they were at the time now I know that they were eating the pests so I've always been interested in trying to advocate where I could in high school environmental science was my favorite class I was writing about the Keystone pipeline and at the time it wasn't as like this thing that all the youth knew about because I remember in high school we didn't have like the California climate action organization or like this all these climate organizations that we have now they kind of sprouted after we got out of high school, at least me. Um, but in college, what really drove me outside of it being my major was Standing Rock, having building a relationship with my community. Um, we also have the issue of mining in Wirikuta, which is our place of creation. So beginning to see all the different indigenous sacred lands and just land in general, because all land is important and sacred um seeing all these issues of governments and corporations trying to pollute our land can you talk a little bit about your social media page and 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 what you do with that so my social media at for the love of earth is my personal platform originally and uh, i don't i don't remember how people started to follow me that was never my intention i was just sharing about um Indigenous issues, because that's really what I care about. I want to make sure that I'm using my voice to give a platform to other Indigenous communities. Um, Because there's a lot of issues throughout the... Indigenous peoples exist throughout the world, and a lot of times we see media focused on North America. And even then, there's very little media coverage. It's very limited. Basically... Last year, I started um, going more. I started going to protests. I hadn't done that before. That wasn't. I was more interested in like science and like writing, um, sharing information that I was I was researching in that way, like actually in person, like presenting to people and like telling community members around me about these issues um, that were happening at the time when I was in college. And then when I graduated, I was a wildland firefighter. And 
I got to, my first fire assignment was on it with a tribe, so with the tribal fire crew. So that was a really unique experience of mixing traditional ecological knowledge, which is what I really cared about, and wildfires and those dynamics. And finally, the fire season ended, and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I <laughs> felt like I wasn't doing anything. And I went to visit my homelands, and I saw, I saw the ridiculous erosion, and just the ground was so dried up. And I was like, this isn't what I thought it would look like. I'd never been there before. Um, and the ground was just cracked, and there hadn't, it seemed like there hadn't been rain for 100 years. My father told me um, how all these mining corporations are they're destroying the soil, the land, the water, the air. And then this just became a thing. I started going to protest. I didn't always post, but sometimes I would post a picture of me at the protest. And this was just my way of like, okay, I have I have a little bit of followers and maybe me posting because I would share the protest. I would share, okay, there's this protest, there's this protest, there's this protest. And I was like, okay, I'm sharing the information, but these people don't know that I'm going to the protest and maybe they see that I'm going, they'll want to go too. Um, so that's why I was, and I know that there's like a huge issue of like, oh, it's so performative that you go to a protest to take a photo and then that's it. But my idea was if I take a photo and I post it, then people will want to go. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the what people see as the mainstream environmental movement and how how that movement or that conservation movement has had negative impacts on your communities and, and what you think the mistakes are? The mainstream environmental movement has failed to enter the communities that are being affected by environmental racism, resource extraction, and all the issues that are that they are trying to address in moving towards a greener future. And this presents the issue of you're getting voices that are not necessarily diverse controlling what the messaging is and pushing for solutions that are not necessarily regenerative. But we're getting this issue of like diversity and identity and you're getting these identity politics. But if you don't have diversity of thought, then you're getting stuck in the same lane and you're not going to have different ideas for solutions. And that's how you get something like green capitalism, sustainable clothing, green consumerism, green materialism, green technology that doesn't take into account that there are indigenous communities being affected by these decisions. That They're saying, oh, let's do this. This is better for the environment. Um, it happened on Kukia Mauna, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Um, they said, oh, we're going to have one big telescope and this telescope will let astronomers see deep, deep into space. But they don't think about these telescopes are spilling oil. These are astronomers. These are people who support the environmental movement that are saying, yes, build the telescope. They want to look deep into space. And why wouldn't you, right? You want to see the galaxy, but at the expense of just desecrating a sacred mountain to the Hawaiian people. The, the mainstream environmental movement has failed historically to give a voice and to amplify the voices of the communities who have been fighting grassroots, these intersectional movements because i've been to protests i went to protests last year there was intersectional environmentalism has existed Interse intersectionality is finally like starting to happen and we need to work together so that we're not we're not trying to speak on top of each other but we're also allowing people to like not trying to represent a community that 
we don't belong to or trying to speak for people that we shouldn't be speaking for. But yeah, so the mainstream environmental movement is definitely moving in the right direction, but not so much when you're talking about green energy and um, like sustainable consumerism. Like these, these, these are, you're greenwashing all these, you're greenwashing, it's green capitalism, which right. is what's happening. Um, and yeah, so that's still, it's still a huge issue and it shows what voices are still at the top. So I've talked to a lot of scientists or psychologists about you know the psychology of connecting people to land and how this affects their view of the world and their um their environmentalism and also their own mental health um but what I've also gleaned is that a lot of that has been understood by many indigenous communities for literally forever um can you can you talk about your own personal connections to the environment I know you do like a lot of hiking and and spend a lot of time outdoors and you know you're firefighting and all of that um and and can you talk about what insights you can share about what connecting people to land can do for individuals and communities yeah indigenous people have known for for millennia that we have humans have are connected to the land and we have a relationship with the land. Different communities have different relationships to their land, obviously. It's not all, it's not homogenous. But in my community, we have four teachers that are part of nature. And through that, we know, we under, we have an understanding that nature is our teacher, that the environment is our teacher. And you can always, you can see that. Um, and so one of the issues of wildfires is that the deer like they used to teach their young like how to how to know if the smoke is good or if the smoke is bad how do you know if it's like a controlled fire or a, like a intense fire that they need to escape because of fire suppression these animals weren't able to carry on that knowledge and that has affected them as well like as we have wildfires now so it's a lot of relearning the environment, there was reasons why things were happening in the environment, the rains, the fires, these natural events kept the land healthy and it taught everybody a lesson, it, the animals and, and humans. So for me, my personal connection to the environment is understanding water is alive, the soil is alive, the plants communicate with each other, they share, like they share nutrients. There's, um, it, it, there's multiple examples of, for example, redwoods. Though, if you go to Muir Woods National Park, it's not marked, but there's a white redwood, and the other redwoods feed it because it's white. It can't make chlor, it can't produce chlorophyll. But what it does is it takes up the toxic um, metals, and that's and so it cleans the soil, and the other redwoods keep it alive. So there's always been this relationship of community even that we learn from if we're just observing the environment. Um, so for me, that's always been very important um, just to understand that I need to respect the environment and that it'll provide for me. What do you want to see in the future of the conservation movement? My hope is that 
we recognize the importance in decentralizing the environmental movement and making sure that it's community focused. It's very important to have these social media platforms where we connect to resources and connect to knowledge, but it's important to make sure that you're active in your community and you're supporting your community. And if your community is perfect, then help somebody else figure that out because no community is perfect right now. My hope is that people research and they see what environmental issues are affecting their communities because there is always something. Something's happening in every community throughout the world that is affecting the environment that is affecting our relationship to the environment and that we can improve on. We need to move away from this idea that Western knowledge is what's going to save the planet because we're in the climate crisis right now. We're not waiting for 10, we're not waiting 10 or eight years. People keep saying we've always tried to put it off. We've known since the seventies, indigenous elders have known since before the seventies, indigenous elders have been trying to share their concerns with, global leaders since before the 70s and no one's ever listened so unfortunately now we're at the last lap and finally indigenous knowledge is being um, is being uplifted and people want to listen wherever you are go find out about your community go find out about the indigenous peoples of that area people should work to support building these relationships like if you're in a place of privilege and that doesn't necessarily have to mean racial. It can be, it can be racial, economic knowledge. Like if you have knowledge, that's a huge thing that you can give to other people. Um, but just trying to help develop stewardship for public lands, like with other people in your community could just be your friends and just trying to understand the environment. I hope you enjoyed these past two episodes. I would like to thank the experts who joined me in connecting these ideas around the science of our relationship with nature and what that means for the future of conservation. Are you involved in these topics and want to continue the conversation? Feel free to reach out to me at the contact info below. Thanks for listening.